Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by my colleagues. Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Amanda Miklas, Senior Biopharma Analyst. Amanda will be discussing her analysis of M&A momentum in the face of the COVID-19 crisis a little later in the podcast, but first, Let's touch on FDA, which moments ago revoked the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. Steve, you've been following this closely over the past few weeks. Are you surprised? I'm not sure that I'm surprised. I think that it was definitely the right move for them to do it. A lot of people would say that it was past due. Steve, what impact do you think that's going to have? I mean, there's a whole bunch of trials in progress and still recruiting for chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, what impact do you think, if any, the withdrawal of the EUA is going to have on them? Well, technically, it doesn't have to have any effect on them. There's no reason why those trials couldn't continue. But I think that it's going to be very difficult to enroll anybody in a trial of either of those drugs now when FDA has come out and said that it's very unlikely that they're going to work. And I think that IRBs, are going to rethink whether it's even appropriate to allow those trials to continue. What is the early approval of hydroxychloroquine, or not approval, but authorization, important distinction there, and then FDA now revoking it, what can we expect for the first vaccines that might come before FDA? Well, you know, there's a huge amount of angst right now among senior officials in the government and FDA, CDC, and other agencies and former government officials about what FDA is going to do in terms of granting emergency authorization to COVID-19 vaccines. The concern is that as soon as there's a clear efficacy signal, FDA will come under immense political pressure to authorize widespread use of these vaccines. And they'll do that before there's sufficient safety data to ensure that there aren't unexpected or rare safety events. That's a huge concern because these vaccines are going to be given to potentially millions, tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of people. And rare safety events take some time to become clear and they take large uh, amounts of exposure before you can know that they're likely to happen and to characterize them. So premature authorization of widespread use of a vaccine could really, really pose serious public health consequences. And if there are adverse events that people don't expect, it could create a tremendous loss of confidence, not only in COVID-19 vaccines, but in vaccines in general. So I think there's a real concern that, that this could be really disastrous. It's one thing to withdraw emergency use authorization for a therapeutic like hydroxychloroquine, I think it's a completely different thing to withdraw emergency use authorization for a vaccine because a therapeutic like hydroxychloroquine is going to be used principally for use in hospitalized patients who are under a doctor's care. Those are sick patients and you're giving them something with the hope that it's going to make them better. Vaccines are given to large numbers of healthy people and the withdrawal of an emergency use authorization for a vaccine could create chaos. I think that that's something that FDA is going to have to be cognizant of. And my hope is that all of the talk about very, very early 
authorizations of COVID-19 vaccines are being motivated by political concerns that will dissipate after the election. Sounds good there, Steve. Another thing I know you've been tracking closely is the ACTIVE Consortium. Now, ACTIVE stands for Accelerating COVID-19 Therapeutic Interventions and Vaccines. It's a public-private partnership that's pooling U.S. government resources and resources of biopharmas around the world to discover and develop drugs and vaccines. They've just selected their first wave of therapies. Steve, what did they pick? So basically, they've decided they're going to start four master protocols this summer, two in late June and, and two in July. One of the master protocols that's going to start this summer focuses on immune modulator drugs, and a second one for anticoagulants. And there's a possibility, of course, that the two will be combined at some point and they'll have combination trials of immune modulators and anticoagulants. And then two other master protocols they're starting this summer are for monoclonal antibodies that could be used either as prophylaxis to prevent people from getting infection or as therapies for hospitalized patients to help them get over their infections more quickly. So I actually think that there's a couple of really interesting things that you uncovered here, Steve. One, of course, everything here is a master protocol. I think it's going to be interesting to watch how much master protocols really make a difference in developing therapies for COVID. Maybe that'll catch on afterwards. And then the other thing is the choice of their targets, because they haven't actually gone for the antivirals. I'm assuming that they believe that that's maybe you know, underway by enough other companies. They're targeting immune modulators, and this is a really important part of the disease pathology. People should keep their eye out for these. On the one hand, it's TNFs that they're looking for, CTLA-4, CCR2, CCR5, other inflammatory cytokines like IL-6. These are behind the inflammation that leads to ARDS, the damage that is actually caused later in the disease and that is actually often responsible for death. And so antivirals is one thing, but actually looking at the host immune system is really important. And I, th I think it's interesting that they've gone and put so much emphasis on that. The, see, the chemokine receptors are also implicated in runaway inflammation and CTLA-4 is an immune checkpoint protein that people most probably have heard of for cancer. So it puts a break on the T-cell response, and that's what clears the virus. I think that's actually really interesting that, that they went in that direction. And, and we should be seeing more and more trials coming out with that, but there's certainly an urgency. And of course, they are also testing a couple of neutralizing and monoclonal antibodies against the virus. We don't know the molecules, if I understand correctly, Steve, but they've got some interesting targets there. Well, one of the things actually that's surprising, honestly, and I think a little bit disappointing about the way that ACTIVE is organizing itself is that there isn't very much transparency. The, the only reason that we know what the targets are and the fact that they're doing these uh, master protocols at all is because somebody um, leaked uh, documents to me that outline what their strategy is. They still haven't publicly disclosed what they're going to do, what their rationale, or even what their criteria is for selecting the agents that they're moving forward. I think that the other thing that, that they have discussed, and I think that's going to be very important about this, is that these master protocols are going to be done at a very large scale, and I think they're going to be done efficiently. They're going to avoid the problems that we're seeing in the United States and around the world, where there's just a ton of 
underpowered trials of marginal agents that are crowding out the larger trials that need to be done of the most promising agents. So active in a way they're trying to organize the, the innovation ecosystem to produce quick results of the things that they think are, are the most promising. Let's change gears now and turn to Amanda, who's been patiently waiting for her chance to jump in here. Last week, she completed an analysis of M&A momentum in the face of COVID-19. So she looked at public company acquisitions this year and compared it with M&A over the last 10 years. Now, Amanda, one thing that I think you saw was that there are some signs that a new dip could be forming for public biopharma acquisitions, both in terms of deal value and the number of deals. How did you arrive at that takeaway? We did an analysis on acquisitions going back to 2009, immediately after the financial crisis, so that we could take a pulse of the momentum leading up to another crisis, the crisis that we're in, which is COVID-19. And when looking at the data, we noticed that there are two different four-year windows where the total deal value has gradually increased And those two windows are 2012 to 2015, and then again in 2016 to 2019. So as part of this project, we dug a little bit deeper into both of those windows to see what were the similarities and what were the differences. But just going back to your question about this potential trial in um, 2020, if we just look at the most recent four-year window, which was 2016 to 2019, the median valuation over that four-year time period is $28 billion uh, deal value. But in the last two full years, 2018 and 2019, the total acquisition value for both of those years was actually $50 billion. So it's quite a high benchmark. So if 2020 wants to maintain that momentum, the full year total will need another $42 billion. So right now we only have $8 billion in total deal value in 2020. So if we want to reach that momentum that we've seen for the past two years, we're going to need quite a bit more in um, deal value. And as far as the, the median value, as I said, the median value for that most recent four-year time period is $28 billion. And currently, we'll need another $20 billion to even reach the median value. So what we could see, as you pointed out, is a, a new trial, but it's still early to tell because this data was through May of 2020. So there's still quite a few months left in the year to meet that momentum. Right. We'd need a fairly sort of active second half of the year because we're well under halfway the benchmark. But one thing, Amanda, maybe you could just dig into because you saw a different behavior actually on premiums, the median premiums. Yeah. So as part of this analysis, we wanted to see what were the the similarities and differences in these two uh, four-year windows that we noticed. And what we found was that in the earlier time period from 2012 to 2015, there was a median premium on public M&A of 45%. And then when we look at that second window, which is 2016 to 19, that median premium actually jumped more than 20%. So it jumped up to uh, 68%. 
And even more, in 2020 alone, the median premium is already above the overall median. So the median premium just for this year is 96%. It's important to keep in mind, though, that there's five deals in this data set of public company acquisitions. So it's a smaller data set. And four of those five deals had premiums in the range of 70% to 145%. So it's skewing a a little higher. But as far as premiums on public M&A, it looks to be trending upward. What's driving that, Amanda? So another slice of data that we looked at that may be driving that is the stage of the lead asset at the time of the acquisition. And What may be occurring is that there's a growing appetite for clinical assets. So we looked at the volume of deals done over this time period and split it into the proportion of whether or not the lead asset was in preclinical studies, clinical trials, or if it was marketed. And what we found was that proportion of volume of acquisitions of clinical companies is actually risen since 2013. And and even more, we also looked at the median premiums on the the deals split out by the stage at deal signing. And what we found was that the companies that had clinical compounds or programs have gotten higher premiums actually than companies with marketed or uh, approved products. So one of the drivers of that may be that those higher premiums that we're seeing are companies wanting to acquire these clinical stage products more so. Do you think the appetite for this can be maintained this year? So right now we've seen an increase in clinical stage uh, or clinical company acquisitions uh, since 2015. And the uh, median deal volume over that time period was seven deals. And in 2020, so far, we've only had one deal. You mean a clinical company deal, right? Yes. So only one of those clinical deals so far. So if we want to maintain that, that or reach that median, we'd need six more deals. But in 2019, there were nine clinical acquisitions and we only have one in 2020. So we'll need at least eight more deals to maintain that momentum of clinical acquisitions. And again, as Simone pointed out, we're, st- we're still in the early part of the year right now, and I think that could be perfectly uh, achievable. I think a couple more interesting things that came out of Amanda's research. First of all, the peak years were 2015 and 2019. I don't need to remind you all that those were both pre-election years in the U.S., of course. Actually, the numbers with those two windows that Amanda described were really similar, really interesting, how many deals and what valuations and so on. But one of the differences we saw is that in the second window, so leading up to 2019, there were more deals. So the number of billion dollar deals or billion plus dollar deals was pretty similar. But of the smaller deals, they skewed higher. So for deals under a billion dollars, leading up to 2019, there were six deals in that class with an average of $591 million, which is about 30% of the total The first window had had fewer of those. So I think talking about making those numbers, it'll be interesting. We may have more deals that are still in the sub-billion dollar category, but are quite substantial. 
and you know may get the numbers there. So that was an interesting thing. And I think another point that Amanda brought out is she overlaid the pattern of values against the S&P 500, but against the NBI, the biotech indices. And while they did go up with the same sort of two window pattern as the NBI, you know, in the first window, deal values rose 600%, where the NBI rose 280%. The second deal values rose 234%, where the NBI rose 53%. So it is sort of even outperforming. It isn't just being dragged along with the market. Deals are being driven. And as Amanda pointed out, in the second window, that was driven by companies that had reached clinical development. So we will be watching that through this year to see if that's a a trend that continues or if the industry is sort of pressing reset and starting a new baseline that we'll be measuring. It sounds like the BD folks out there need to get busy if they're going to save 2020. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks, Amanda, Simone, and Steve. All of BioCentury's coverage of the coronavirus crisis is available at biocentury.com slash coronavirus. And all of our podcasts are available at our website on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google.